want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 15 and 16. Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 36. Reading through Acts chapter 16, verse 40. Covering a pretty hefty chunk of Scripture this morning. And that's because a lot of it is narrative. And we need to walk through these stories that are true, that happened, that were recorded for us as history of how the gospel covered the earth and how the church was launched. And so I want to ask you to join in this narrative with me in Acts chapter 15. And we're going to begin where we left off last week. We're going to begin with verse 36. And I'm going to read through chapter 16, verse 40. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone will bring you a copy of the Scriptures. If you're new to the Bible, you can look in the table of contents and find the page number. Acts 16, or Acts 15, starting with verse 36. Please follow along. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches, chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to take Timothy uh, to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Traos. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting setting sail from Traos, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. When we remained in this city some days, and on the seventh, seventh day, we, Sabbath day, we went outside the gate 
to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Then the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was, were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house, into his house, and set before them food. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who were Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and they do not... Uh, now throw us out, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. 
So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I want to title my sermon today, The Disruptive Gospel. The Disruptive Gospel. But before we get into it, if you would pray with me, let's ask God for his help. Father, we do ask for your help today as we get into this word, this passage, these wonderful string of stories. I pray to God that you would help us to see how the gospel disrupts the sinful society in which we live and how Christ disrupts our own lives so that we might know that we need a Savior. Father, we come to Christ this morning as our Savior and as our help. Please help us, help me as I speak to preach your word, to preach your truths, help your people to listen, to have hearts that are open, ears that are open, that receive your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to draw your attention to that life-giving, sin-disrupting question that was asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? God disrupts our lives and saves sinners. But here's the thing, church. You need to have an appetite for His Word, a knowledge that you need salvation in order to be saved, in order to even ask the question, what must I do to be saved? One of the things I didn't expect in having teenagers is that they feed themselves, and that can sometimes be challenging. I guess I always knew that kids would eventually feed themselves. I never knew it would be a challenge. I've asked my daughter and my other daughter to use uh, this analogy with their permission, all right? There have been times where I come home And I began to cook some chicken breast and some vegetables and some rice, something that is somewhat nourishing, healthy, right? Or my wife does the same. And there have been times where our teenage girls have come in and uh, they say, I'm not hungry. You're not hungry. They say, no. I ate ramen. I googled, what are the health benefits of ramen? (laughs) Now listen, I'm not talking about like actual Japanese ramen, all right? I'm talking about those crusty little squares of noodles that you get in little bags, and it comes with a smaller bag that's called flavor, all right? Well, Google told me this. Though instant ramen noodles provide iron and B vitamins, they lack fiber, protein, and other crucial vitamins and minerals. Additionally, their MSG, TBHQ, and high sodium contents may negatively affect health, such as by increasing your heart disease, risk of heart disease, stomach cancer, and a metabolic syndrome. Ramen. One preacher who's 
his name's Elder Ward, who's a mentor of one of my mentors. I heard him say in a sermon once on YouTube, he said that so often we are filled with the junk food of the world, that we have no appetite for the things of Christ. We're so filled with the ramen of the world that we have no appetite for the nourishing meal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's some of you, some, there's some of you that's trying to get some directions right now. <laughs> there's, there's some of you that don't know why you would ever even ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And that's because you have no appetite for the things of Christ. Because you're going after all of this cheap, easy meals of the world. And then what happens is this, is some people say, oh well, hey, um, the people are eating ramen, let's serve them ramen on Sundays. That's what they want. You know, Paul eventually tells Timothy, who we meet in this passage, that there's going to come a time where people gather for themselves ear ticklers, who get into the kitchen and just prepare the, the, the false kinds of savior messages that you want that lead you down paths of destruction, that don't disrupt the nasty schemes of the world, but actually present the schemes of the world as the ways of God. They don't disrupt the false saviors of the world, but they actually allow you to go after your false saviors and basically say, and let me show you how Jesus can help you get there. Now, God comes in Christ and disrupts things, disrupts the schemes of the world, disrupts the, the, the meals that we're preparing for ourselves, disrupts what we're eating, what we're being nourished on in this world. He disrupts the sinful lifestyle, the sinful ways and organizations of this world so that we might know that there is a question that has to be asked. And that question is, what must I do to be saved? As the story continues from last week, Paul and Barnabas have been on the road together. They have been co-missionaries working together to promote the gospel. And as we begin in the last couple verses of chapter 15, we see a split come where Barnabas wants to take his cousin John Mark on the next mission. And Paul's like, nah man, I don't think that's a good idea. Because John Mark split on us before. And so, so Paul doesn't think John Mark is going to be a reliable candidate as a co-missionary based on his track record. It says that they get, in verse 39, in a sharp disagreement, which means they had it out. And as a result, they go in two separate ways. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a Christian say, man, I just want the kind of Christianity that we see in Acts. I just want to be a part of the kind of church that you see in Acts. Well, let me just tell you, the church in Acts had drama, all right? You want to be a church like the church in Acts, there are sharp disagreements and parting of ways where they, one says, I think you're wrong and I'm going this direction, and the other one says, I think you're wrong and I'm going this direction. Listen to this, church. Gospel success isn't dependent on our unity. 
Now don't get me wrong, our unity is extremely important. We are to strive to display the unity that we already have. But all I'm saying is that God's power is not bound to our ability to display that. And even more so, God can use these, these sharp disagreements for the promotion of his gospel. And so Barnabas goes one way to Cyprus, and Paul goes another way with a different team to Syria and to Cecilia, or Cilicia, in chapter 15, verse 39 and 40. Now, in chapter 16, we meet a new character. His name, <coughs> excuse me, is Timothy. Timothy's mother's Jewish, but his dad is Greek. Therefore, Timothy was not circumcised as a baby. Now, as a grown man, Paul wants to take Timothy as one of his co-missionaries. And it says in the first couple verses, chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, that Paul circumcises Timothy. Now, talk about Timothy proving his desire to be a missionary. That's not something that they teach you in seminary. There's a question, though, that arises, and that is this. How is it, or why is it, rather, that after Acts chapter 15, when they just determined that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved, does Paul, in the very next chapter, circumcise Timothy? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. He did it not so Timothy could be saved, but he did it for contextual and missional purposes, it was for the Jews in those regions, not false Christians, not people that claim to be Christians, not people that bear the name brother but are actually Christian legalists, but non-Christian Jews. So that they would not be a stumbling block, he circumcised Timothy, not to appease Christian legalists, but rather to reach the lost, not to win Timothy but to win, win the lost. Meaning there may be times when you do actually intentionally change a, an aspect of your culture, an aspect of your habits, the way that you dress. There might be a time where you actually change something for the sake of the gospel. My admonition, admonition for you is this. Don't ever do it to appease the Christian legalists. But do it for the lost, for the sake of the lost. Are you with me? Paul's strategy was always simple. He said, I became all things to all people so that I might win some. And I think Timothy agrees with that. If me being circumcised is what it takes to win some, pull out the knife. So they go to uh, Macedonia. There's a line here that says that they, that they got word of, uh, from the Spirit to not go to Asia, which is kind of interesting. But I think what, he, what we're simply see, seeing here is a progression of God's sovereign plan. The gospel did actually go to Asia. But for whatever reason, he wanted the testimony to come out of those Christians in Macedonia to go to Asia. So this is just simply God's sovereign plan at work. Paul gets a vision in verses 9 and 10 of a man who's a Macedonian, and he says, come to Macedonia. And so Paul then goes with his, tr his crew to Macedonia. They get to the main city in Macedonia, which is a city called Philippi. Everybody say Philippi. What letter do you think was written to the city of Philippi? Philippians. We're going to see here 
the planting of the church in Philippi, which later on Paul writes the letter Philippians to the very church that we see planted right here in, uh, in the, these verses, in verse 13. So in verse 13, he goes to Philippi, and he goes down to a prayer meeting by the river. There was no synagogue in Philippi. Those who were God-fearing Jews, they were most likely Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism at some form, and they were worshiping the God of Israel. They would come down and gather by the river for a prayer meeting. And so Paul hears word of a prayer meeting happening at the river on the Sabbath day. And so he goes there not to pray, not to worship, but he goes there to evangelize, which is an interesting uh, point to, to look at. This is an evangelization tactic. He shows up at the river and he meets a woman named who? Lydia. Another important character in the Bible. He meets a woman named Lydia. Now let's talk about Lydia a little bit. Lydia is from Thyatira. Thyatira is sort of the ancient version of what might be Milan or Paris or New York today, the, 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 the fashion capital of the world. Discovery of, uh, of historians have uh, shown that there, is, uh, there was a large clothing industry that came out of Thyatira. They had artists that would make fabrics out of wool and out of leather, and they had artists that would make all these different kinds of dyes. Uh, the most important and the most crucial was the dye purple. And, uh, and so Thyatira then is this, this city of, of uh, affluence and wealth and creativity and, and art, and that's where Lydia is from. She also has a house in Philippi, which says something about her status and her wealth. Not only is she from Thyatira, assuming she has a house there, but she's also got a second house here in Philippi. In verse 14, she's a seller of purple goods, which would be sort of like saying she works for Gucci. All right, she, she, she sells clothing that only the wealthy buy. Purple goods would have most likely been clothing and Purple was the, the color of clothing that only the rich would wear. And so she's making clothes for the rich, meaning Lydia has done pretty well for herself. Are you with me? She's also a devout person. She's a Gentile uh, a worshiper of, 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 of God, and she's down there praying. When she meets Paul in verse 14, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so Lydia is converted, and whether it happens immediately or sometime later, we don't know, but in verse 15, she's baptized, her whole household believes, and is baptized as well. Now, what I want to do as I walk through these stories is I want to show you how the gospel disrupts all of life so that we might get to the point where we cry out, what must I do to be saved? The first thing I want to point out to you is this, is that the gospel disrupts ambition. Doesn't rid us of ambition, but rather disrupts it and redirects it. I heard a song yesterday while I was working out, and I thought to myself, man, this song sounds a lot like Britney Spears. Like, whoever this artist is, like, they're pulling out these old beats, and 
and she sounds like Britney Spears, and, uh, and I'm like, this is interesting. And so I looked it up later because I thought, I thought one of the lines was like actually a good analogy for my sermon for this point. And it was actually Britney Spears. Um, and the, the, the line that stuck out to me was this. Britney, I never thought I would quote Britney Spears before, all right, in my sermons. But she says, she's so lucky. She's a star. But she cry, cry, cries in her lonely heart, thinking, if there's nothing missing in my life, then why do these tears come at night? Oh, whoa. It's deep, isn't it? I was, as I was listening to that, I was thinking like Lydia. Lydia would be somebody who would have, in her world, status, wealth. She's got it all. If there's nothing missing in her life, then why is it that she's so quick to respond to a Savior? If there's anybody that knows that just simply getting riches in this world is enough. It would have been Lydia. She's living in great cities, powerful cities. She's got status. She's got a name. She's got a reputation. And the world tells us that salvation is found in being successful. The world tells us that salvation is found in having wealth and resources. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel comes and disrupts wealth. It does sometimes. But wealth in and of itself, resources and status is not bad. These are amoral things. Ambition is actually good. But what we see is when Lydia becomes a Christian, the gospel immediately redirects her ambitions. And she's no longer known as merely a seller of purple. But she goes down in history as one of the most generous supporters of the Christian faith, according to the Bible and tradition. She begins to immediately use her wealth and her resources for the building up of the church. Where do we see this? Well, in verse 15, as soon as she gets baptized, she opens her home to the missionaries. She becomes hospitable. Come and stay with me. Live with me. We also see in verse 40 that the, the brothers are gathering in her house. Most likely, she's opened up her, her home as a church building where a church has now started. And she's using all of her resources to provide a space for the brothers to come and to congregate and to be the people of Christ. Later on in Philippians, when Paul writes back to this very church, he starts off by saying, I thank my God every time I think of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I think it's possible and very likely that Lydia was at the very center and very core of that partnership in the gospel. This wealthy woman who's promoting the gospel through using her resources to support Paul's work as he goes around the globe to take the gospel to the lost. Now, at the same time, there is a disruption. 
Meaning life is no longer just simply about me acquiring uh, a sense of preservation and safety and comfort in this world, which is the previous scheme that we used to live by. But Paul goes on in the letter to the Philippians, and he says this, he says in verse 30 of chapter 1, he says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. It's, again, likely, if not plausible, that, that, that Lydia suffered for Christ. Some years later, a historian would write about the early church and, and would remind of the Philippians that in their first mix of Christians that came together, that some of them lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. While they had material gain, while they had wealth, while they supported Paul, they also suffered greatly to the point of death for some of them. Imagine, just for a moment, we don't know this, but imagine that Lydia was one of those that died. Imagine that by the time she died, she had lost her purple business because nobody wanted to buy purple from her anymore because of her association with Jesus Christ, which is historically true with a lot of the first century believers. Imagine she lost her business. Imagine then she lost her houses. Imagine Lydia ended up with very little in this world and imagine that she ended up with a knife coming to her throat for her alignment with Jesus Christ. Would she have in that moment taken it all back and said, you know what, give me my business back. Give me my wealth back. Give me my houses back and I'll deny Jesus Christ. No, so many like Lydia went to their death saying the same thing that the Apostle Paul said, and that is this, for me to live is Christ. It's not the things of the world anymore. I no longer live for my vain ambitions in this world. I no longer live merely to acquire in this world, but for me to live is Christ. William Carey, he, he said, look, he, he, he said, God has done great things for you. Expect great things from God. And he says, attempt great things for God. Meaning, go out, church, and do great things. But do them for God. Do them for Christ. Do them to, uh, to, to bring Him glory. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. What sells today so often just simply does not disrupt and redirect worldly ambition. What sells today is a message that says, hey, go after your worldly, self-glorifying ambitions. And let me show you how Jesus can get you there. That's a false gospel. Jesus disrupts ambition and redirects it so that we can actually use it for something so much better. And that's for the glory of God in this world. Secondly, the gospel disrupts oppression. At the same time this Lydia event is happening, there's another uh, uh, sort of story happening as a parallel. 
There's a demon-possessed slave girl that we're introduced to. In verse 16, it says, As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and, her, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Let me read that last line again to you. She brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She was a slave girl, meaning she was owned. And her owners were exploiting her brokenness. Her owners were exploiting the fact that she was possessed by a demon. In verse 17, it goes on to say that, uh, that she, she declared, following Paul and the others around, she declared loudly that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She was saying this over and over and over again. It's ironically true, isn't it? I mean, demons know what's up. Like, even demons, you know, when a demon saw Jesus, he was like, oh, the Son of Man, what, 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 Son of God, what are you going to do to me? You know, like, demons have a hard time lying when they come and uh, 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 encounter the power of God. And so this demon is declaring what is true. However, Paul's annoyed by it. He's just, uh, just annoyed. And I think it's probably because they're living in this polytheistic world. We've got to understand, like, the context they were in. And so just simply saying that, that they're proclaiming the most high God doesn't really mean much. You know, it just means that he's a, a God that's better than our other gods. You know, meaning this isn't the promotion that Paul's looking for. And so after some time, Paul, Paul literally is just annoyed, and he turns around and, uh, and casts the demon out of her. He's like, okay, this is it. You, you're done. In the ancient world, an oracle would have been a very common thing that you may have seen. Uh, they were either, according to the historians, older women that were known as witches or uh, younger, attractive women, which were known as like a, a seer, for example. But we see here with this young slave girl the demonic activity behind all of that. And there's an ugliness to it. She is a young girl, let's think about it, who is enslaved. She has owners. She's taken advantage of by these greedy men. Like, this is really ugly business. Don't think that you can't make money off of sin. There is a lot of dark, ugly business out there that profits off of brokenness and sin. But as the gospel moves here in Acts, what we see is the dominion of God is being displayed in all sorts of ways. We see it first displayed in Lydia's life as God transforms her, redirects her. We see it again displayed now with this slave girl. Annie Locke who is a friend of mine. Her husband used to pastor a church right here in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn neighborhood of Baltimore. She was telling me that when they lived down in Brooklyn, there were a number of prostitutes that would hang out on the church steps and around, around the building there. and They began to love on them and share the gospel with them and, and get to know them. And, and she said she began to learn so much about this sex trade in Baltimore. 
Every woman, she told me, every single one of them, when they asked her, what's your name, they gave her the name Desiree. Every one of them was named Desiree. Desire. It was a complete transformation of their identity. They had taken on this, this identity of being just simply a symbol of desire. They were owned by another. They were being exploited for a number of different reasons, some to pay off debts, some for drugs, some children issues, but they were being exploited for a number of reasons. They would leave uh, supplies for them behind the church marquee. They began uh, trying to think through ways, like how can we really help them? And, and what they discovered was that uh, their, their pimps would have a child, one of their children kept back at the house wherever they were, wherever, wherever they were stationed, I guess, uh, so that they couldn't just leave. They always had to go back. Um, and so they began working with the church to put together a strategy for three of these young ladies to try to rescue them out of this, this sex trade and send them off to another church somewhere else. And as they were getting to know these girls more and as they were spending more time with them, what they realized was every time they would interact with these young ladies, they would come back beat, abused. And when this strategy came together to rescue three of them, they never saw those three again. And then finally, they were warned, you need to stop talking to the girls. My point is this, there is a dark underworld of sin where there is a lot of profit to be made off of exploitation. And one thing that, what that Annie shared with me was as they're sharing the gospel with these girls, they're seeing their owners start to freak out. And Annie said this, I quote, she said, it's because the gospel takes the power out of the hand of the oppressor. When the gospel comes, it liberates you. It frees you, meaning you are no longer Desiree. You're no longer identified by these things. You, no, you no, are no longer owned by any man. But you are owned by God. There is a freedom that comes with the gospel. It disrupts this dark underworld and it takes the power out of the hand of the oppressor. Exploitation and oppression thrive on cover-up and darkness. And it's all fake love. You know, these girls are, had, had fake love. It was almost always a boyfriend. Started out as a boyfriend. That's how they ended up in this. Fake love. Or I think another analogy would be the 14-year-old who's put out on the streets by the hustlers and he's told there to stand and hustle. Run this errand for me. Do this. Love and support, Right? until you're no longer useless to them. Darkness thrives on fake love. There's no real love in exploitation. And so as soon as you change, as soon as that change is seen, you are no longer useful to darkness. What happens here in the story is this, is Paul casts the demon out of the girl and immediately her fortune telling is done. 
she no longer is useful to those who prized her. And there will be ramifications. It is dangerous to both her and it is dangerous to the gospel preacher. Like I said, my friend Annie was warned. When the gospel is preached, it shines light on the darkness. But don't think that, it, that this kind of disruption will be safe for you. In verse 19, it says their hope of gain was gone. Immediately, the court, they're, or they're dragged into court, and the crowds shout and testify against Paul. The magistrates, magistrates strip these men, Paul and Silas both, and they beat them with rods. Look at verse 23. It says, when they inflicted many, inflicted many blows upon them, they drew them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. In verses 35 through 39, I want to jump forward here. When they're released, Paul and Barnabas call out the injustice of what just happened. So they are Roman citizens, which is completely ignored. They are beat. They are thrown into, uh, into jail. And I won't go into all of the details, but it, the way they were it was handled was against Roman law. And so, finally, when they are dismissed later on, as you saw when I read, they want to do it secretly. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're calling for justice. And he uses his rights as a Roman citizen to say, I want you to come down here and do this publicly. I want to put on display the injustice that, was, that happened against us. Look, this is a little side note, all right? Calling for your rights and crying out against societal injustice is not anti-biblical. We see it in the Bible. Paul displays for us the fact that it is good and right to call out and demand your rights. And to say, hey, we're going to see justice here. And so they come down and, 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 uh, and, and apologize in verse 38 and then ask them politely to leave the city. The point is this. The gospel is disruptive. And the gospel disrupts oppression. Number three, the, the gospel also finally disrupts power. I see this thirdly with the jailer. We're, we're introduced now to a third character. We've got Lydia, we've got the slave girl, and then we've got a jailer. The jailer it becomes like the next victim of God's amazing grace. He's a, most likely a retired military leader. He's been given this position of, of power in the jail. And it is a, truly a position of power. He is to use whatever means possible, whatever means necessary to keep prisoners in check. And he is brutal. When he's given over to the jailer, he throws them into the deepest and darkest prison and he fastens their feet. This would have been in a piece of wood with holes in it. Their feet would have been spread and it would have been extremely uncomfortable. They would have been forced to sleep on their backs or sitting up, which is probably why they're still awake at midnight. 
The jailer's earthly salvation is found in his power. It's found in his ability to keep these prisoners in place. And it's very important that he does so. Because if he were to lose one of the prisoners, what happens to the jailer's head? It comes off. All right? Death penalty. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I, I, I don't imagine that they weren't praying and singing without tears in their eyes. This isn't to say that they didn't feel pain. It's to say they sung through the pain. When the Holy Spirit is alive in your heart, He directs you to worship and pray even in your darkest, most painful moments. They had memorized their songs that they sung in, in church. They didn't need the PowerPoint or the handout. They didn't need a choir or a cathedral. They are in this moment in jail, the two of them praying together, and then two voices being lifted up in song together. And it's ministering, I think, to the uh, prisoners. At least the other prisoners are listening to, to them as they display this hope in, in Christ. Someone said once, a preacher said once, that the world is not impressed with you when things are going well. The world is impressed when things are not going well and you still trust in Jesus Christ. And I think that's such a beautiful, beautifully put on display right here with Paul and Silas as everything in the world around them is dark and bad and they're singing songs to God. That's the power of salvation. This isn't a, a whole point of my sermon, but there's another disruption here, isn't there? He even disrupts our, our suffering. He disrupts our darkness through joy, through putting a song in our heart. But getting back to my main theme here, he's disrupting this power. So they're, they're in chains, they're in jail, they're singing. And around the same time, an earthquake takes place. And it shakes the foundations of the prisons and the doors bust open wide and their shackles come off. And verse 27 says, that, that when, when the uh, uh, jailer wakes up, maybe he was knocked out from the earthquake, we don't know. He's, he's rubbing his eyes and he's waking up and he's realizing that the doors are wide open. It says, supposing that they escaped, he pulls out his sword and is about to commit suicide until Paul says in verse 25, 28, yo, don't do it. We're still here. Like nobody, we could have left, but nobody's left. We're all still here. Rubbing his eyes, he's peering through the darkness and he brings some light and he sees the prisoner sitting there. Paul and Silas. And this, this leads to the climax of our passage. So far we've seen a rich woman, Lydia, transformed by the gospel. We've seen a slave woman uh, released of this bondage to, to sin. And now we're about to see a disruption of the jailer's life as the gospel invades. In verse 29, 
and 30, it says, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, church, that is the question right there that everybody has to ask in their lifetime at some point. What must I do to be saved? The human problem is not that we don't realize we need to be saved. The human problem is the fact that we're constantly going after all of these other saviors that don't save. We're constantly going after the salvation and wealth or status. If I can just get the right paycheck, if I can just get my money together. We're going after salvation in our pimps. If I can just get my debt paid off. We're going after salvation in abusing and using others. We're going after salvation in trying to acquire and maintain a position. Satan wants you to believe that this world is all there is. And therefore, he wants you to believe that salvation is found in this world. But I'm telling you that there is more than this world. There is more in this world. So therefore, salvation must come from the outside, not come from the inside. Lydia knows that riches do not save. The slave girl knows the chains of slavery. The jailer knows that power can't save. But the jailer has heard their songs. He's, he knows why they're in jail. He knows their message. See, sometimes you've got to get to the point where you realize you're not saved in order to be able to ask the question that the jailer asks. What must I do to be saved? This is the plea of the damaged. This is the plea of the person who's been defrauded by society. This is the plea of the discombobbled, the one who's confused and doesn't know where to go. But what's wonderful about Christianity is when you hit rock bottom, you are on the precipice of transformation. The answer comes not in the form of law. It's not a to-do. It's not a list of things to do. It's not in the form of condemnation, the things that you've done. He doesn't even say, commit to Jesus. Yes, you do commit to Jesus, but you only commit to Jesus until when, when you realize Jesus is committed to you. He doesn't say, follow Jesus. Yes, you do follow Jesus as a Christian. But we're not saved by following Jesus, his moral and ethical principles. We do those things because Jesus sought after us. What he says is this. It's a simple invitation. In verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. Believe what? That he died? Believe that he existed? Well, the demons believe that Jesus died. The demons believe that Jesus existed. So what are we called to believe? We're called to believe that the salvation that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary was for me. That Jesus died for your sins. That Jesus took the wrath of God for your sins. The judgment that you deserved was placed on him. And he died. He defeated it. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And he's called you to come and trust in him. So to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to say that I trust that His salvation is for me. He died for me. I have life in Him. 
Jesus disrupts all of our life through our faith. Jesus plus nothing that I can contribute is what saves me. So your life gets disrupted so that you might know Jesus, and then Jesus comes and disrupts your life. You see how that works? But let me ask you this question as we close. Are you happy that Jesus has disrupted your life? Are you happy? Like maybe you don't know the depth of slavery to sin. Maybe you don't know what it's like to be oppressed. Maybe you don't know what it's like to be downtrodden or to be duped by the world. Maybe you don't know what it's like to have a loved one die. But if you do, and if you've come to Christ, then you are glad that Jesus has disrupted your life. That he came in and said, this is not the way we're going to continue. I'm disrupting it, and I'm transforming it for my glory and for your good. But you see, some people don't like the disruption. I, I read a story of a pastor who, who was new to a church, and on his first Sunday, he moved the piano from one side of the stage to the other side of the stage. And it wasn't long before he was fired for it. Because people don't like change. And what I'm saying is this, is there might be somebody who says, I like my life the way it is, organized really without God. And I don't want the disruption. I want to keep things the way they are. But then I think there are others of us who would say, you know what? <laughs> I'm just glad he didn't leave things the way they were. Are you glad that Jesus disrupted life? Are you glad that God disrupted the path that humanity was on toward hell by sending His own Son into this world? Jesus came and disrupted the disciples' lives and called them to follow Him. Jesus disrupted the corrupt religious system of its day and showed true religion. Jesus disrupted Satan's, Satan's plan for his death on the cross, disrupting it, turning it, using it, even ordaining it to be used for, you, for your salvation and for God's glory. And Jesus even disrupted sin and death itself as he rose from the grave. How many of you were living on living a life, living on a path, deserving hell, born into sin, on a path of disruption, are you glad that He disrupted it? Are you glad that He picked you up, turned you around, and set your feet on solid ground? Church, Jesus is worthy to be praised. He is the greatest God of the highest heaven, and He has freed you to live in His marvelous life. Now glorify Him through your life. Amen? Let's pray.